Hello and welcome to Step Into Light. I am Michelle Jones and today we're going to be talking about Mosiah chapters 18 through 24 in the Book of Mormon. And as I was reading through some of these verses, I really began to feel like this, if I could pick a theme for this section, I might think of it as a theme of redemption. So really, we've got a lot of different storylines going on in this reading, and all of them are coming down as descendants from the people of Zenith, who we first got introduced to a couple weeks ago in Come Follow Me. Um, so we have Zenith, his son, King Noah, and King Noah's son, Limhi. And what we're going to see is what happens with all of these people once Abinadi has finished preaching and we're going to see that there are some different groups that are formed and how each group responds to this call to turn to the Lord from Abinadi and how they all like where it brings them all in the end. So we start out with Messiah 18 and Alma, who we remember was a priest of King Noah and part of the group of wicked priests who were not advocating for the pure doctrine of Christ, but were really uh, preaching in a way that supported the direction that Noah wanted to take his kingdom and really his selfishness, if you really look at it, his desire not to work, his desire to seek after pleasure and to have to be above accountability, which doesn't correspond well with the teachings of God. And so here Alma, he, um, as he was listening to Abinadi, if we remember, he was able to feel the, the spirit. Um, I doesn't say that specifically, but we have to kind of extrapolate that that's what's happening here because he felt that the words that Abinadi were teaching were true. And he was able to recognize that the path that he was on was not the right path. And it drove him to action. He, he spoke up in the middle of really a hostile crowd here with the priests of Noah and Noah himself. And he ended up having to flee for his life as the king sent people to, to come after him. And so Alma, as he took in all of these things that Abinadi was teaching, he repented. We see in chapter 18, verse one, that Alma repented of his sins and he privately began going among the people and teaching the words of Abinadi. And in verse three, we see that as many as would hear his word, he did teach and that many people began to believe the things that he was teaching. And again, he was having to do this in secret. Otherwise, his be because his life was um, in danger. King Noah, um, if he had found him, he would have been in danger. And so um, Alma found this place. They called it Mormon. And there was... Um, a body of water there and a place of refuge that they could be. And it was here at this area where the people began to gather. They would come out and find him to learn from him. And he was preaching and teaching the things of Abinadi. And we see in verse eight, some of the things that he begins to teach and um, very familiar scriptures to many of us as we speak about baptism and what covenants we're making at baptism and what brings us um, to have a desire to take that step forward. And so we see in verse eight, um, here's Alma speaking to the people that are gathered as ye are desirous to come into the fold of God and to be called his people. So if this is the desire of your heart and you are willing to bear one another's burdens that they may be light. And so this is part of our covenant is to bear one another's burdens. And how can we do that if we don't experience our own burdens? So there aren't like designated people that have burdens and then designated people that never have any burdens. And so they go and help other people. But really, it seems as though we each are placed with different burdens and that 
through so doing, we can um, minister to one another more effectively. And as I was reviewing these readings this morning, the thought came to me that this is really an opportunity for us to become more like our Savior, Jesus Christ, because he is able to minister to us and to care for us and to rescue us because of this great atonement that he wrought. And part of that experience was actually feeling and experiencing all of the things that we have experienced. And so it comes back again to this concept. And I think I've shared this before, but occasionally I feel like a little like I like I recognize that part of our purpose in having struggles in having these epic bring you to your knees challenges in life is the ability that we then have in the future when someone else is experiencing something similar we can then reach forth our hand and help them in such a more effective, loving, compassionate way. And there have been times when that has frustrated me. Like if our whole purpose in having trials is to help other people in trials, well, then why don't we just nobody have trials? Then that'd be super nice. But I realize how much of a loss that would be not only in what we learn but in who we become, the refinement that comes as we wrestle with and learn to lean into our faith and learn to lean into our trust in God, that changes us and it refines us and it helps us to become more like the Savior. And that there is something, it's a really beautiful privilege actually to be able to bear those burdens of somebody else because we have felt the weight of burden ourselves and we know how to step into the yoke with them and to help bear it with them so that they don't have to bear it alone. Okay, we see in verse 9, um, Alma continues and says, also that we are willing to mourn with those that mourn. And we who have known loss and grief learn how to honor these covenants. So again, there's something incredibly like Christ-like in being willing to submit to grief and mourning and suffering and burdens so that we can allow it to refine us and we can then reach forth and minister to others. There's something really beautiful about that process. Um, to comfort those that stand in need of comfort and to stand as witnesses of God. Because in those moments when you have been refined by the challenges, the struggles, the afflictions that you have in your life, you really do stand as a witness of God in a different way than you were able to before. At least that has been my experience that the way that I am able to testify and to comprehend the things of God, to witness of him, to witness of miracles is fundamentally different, more authentic, more meaningful maybe than before those experiences. We see in verse 10, Alma, and it, it gives an invitation. If this be the desire of your hearts, what have you against being baptized? And so he's sharing, he's teaching this, and people do have a desire. Some of these people that are following, it's not the majority of people. We see early on in this chapter that it is a smaller group of people, but nonetheless, it is a group of people, and they do have a desire to follow the words of Abinadi, to learn from Alma, who is committed now to these teachings that Abinadi has given him about our Savior Jesus Christ. And in verse 12, we see Alma in prayer. He says, O Lord, pour out thy spirit upon thy servant, that he may do this work with holiness of heart. So Alma's asking for spiritual power and sanctification to be prepared to do God's work. 
And I see that as a really um, effective invitation for us to consider as we prepare to do the Lord's work in various aspects of our life, that we step into it and ask for that spiritual power to be with us that is our birthright and to ask for that sanctification. So then we see the baptismal prayer that he used. And I just wanted to point out within that prayer that he specifically references that all is possible through the redemption of Jesus Christ. So again, bringing that to the forefront here in our Book of Mormon reading is our Savior Jesus Christ. So then we have some teachings. Alma is sort of establishing the focus and the boundaries or the template for how as a group of people, as a body of saints here in this time who are seeking to follow after Jesus Christ, that he is going to set up some things that some principles for them to follow. So we see in verse 16, um, learning that they were baptized in the waters of Mormon and were filled with the grace of God. And I found myself wondering, what does that look like for each of us individually? What would we receive? What would be magnified in our life? What what would we be empowered or enabled to do in our life if we were filled with the grace of God? And that that is a, that is a spiritual gift that we can ask for in our life. We see in verse 21, um, that Alma is teaching them to begin having a focus for creating a Zion to have their hearts knit together in unity and in love one towards another. In verse 23, he teaches them about the Sabbath day and how important it is to keep that holy. Um, And in verse 24, he teaches them about the concept that those who have been asked to teach that they should labor with their own hands for their support that the priests that he has set apart and ordained, that they should not be um, relying on other people to provide their their sustenance for them. And I see that correlation in our congregations today, that many of us, we both serve in the church and we work to care for our temporal needs. And that there's a purpose in this integration. I think that there's a, it's part of our experience here on earth to learn to do both, to be able to address these temporal needs and to allow the spirit and the gospel and the work that we do within the church to be integrated within that, that there is something important that we learn from that experience. And for each of us, it's probably something a little bit different, but that we can learn it in a more, with more depth perhaps than if we were solely living in this spiritual realm, that having this mortal body and having this experience, that it matters. In verse 26, we read, for their labor, they were to receive the grace of God, that they might wax strong in the spirit having the knowledge of God that they may teach with power and authority from God. So that's sort of like our paycheck that we get, right? We're not working. We are, in other words, we are not getting paid for our labor in the church. We work for our own sustenance, but what we do receive for the labor that we do in ministering to others in serving in callings, in even leading congregations, is the ability to wax strong in the spirit and to teach with power and authority. And that as we seek to fulfill the needs of others, that we recognize that that's a priority as saints, as children of God, as a body of Christ, it is a priority to seek and look after each other. Okay, so now Alma and his converts, they have to flee from King Noah's anger and from his army because King Noah has not given up. He's not okay that he's not just going to leave it alone, that these people have defied him and gone off into a bit of the wilderness to follow after 
the dictates of their hearts and to pursue um, their relationship with God, how they see fit. King Noah's not leaving this alone. So he's still trying to hunt them down and come after them. So in verses 30 through 34 of chapter 18, we see that they are going to flee from before the people that the Lord warns them that they need to go and that they're able to recognize that. And so that finishes off chapter 18. We're going to pick back up with Alma's group in chapter 23. And right now we're going to see what happens here with King Noah and the people that did not join um, Alma's group. So chapters 19 through 22, we're going to talk about the people of Noah who then become the people of Limhi. So that is what we're going to cover here. And we see it starts out right away that there's contention and division. Um, in verse 2, there began to be a division. We can really see that a lesser part of the people, they are really opposed to King Noah. And a man named Gideon, who comes up more than once in this storyline, that he has decided that King Noah and his wickedness cannot stand, and he seeks to take him out. So there is basically this sort of civil war within this um little kingdom. And in verse five, we see that Gideon fought with the king. He was about to overpower him. And the king rushes to this really tall tower to get away from Gideon, to get on top of him. It's a tower that has been built for defense to be able to see danger out. And as King Noah gets to the top of this tower and Gideon is about to slay him, King Noah looks out and sees an army of the Lamanites within the borders of their land. And he says, Gideon in verse seven, Gideon spare me for the Lamanites are upon us and they will destroy us. And so Gideon spared his life, not necessarily to spare King Noah, but really to focus on this external threat of the Lamanites coming upon them. And they begin to flee and they cannot keep up. So as a people, King Noah and all of his people, they're trying to flee from before the Lamanites and the Lamanites are gaining on them. And in verse 11, we see what to me is like so counterintuitive and kind of shocked, like kind of hard to believe, really. The king commanded them, so the people that were all with him, that all the men should leave their wives and children and flee before the Lamanites because the women and the children were, you know, ostensibly going a little slower than the men could go if they were on their own without having to bring their wives and children with them. And so the king commanded them to leave their wives and their children at the mercy of this invading army and to run on their own, like leave, leave your family behind and get going. And to me, this is an example of how something that feels so intuitive and something that is really just makes my heart just shrink within itself to consider leaving behind my child at the mercy of an army because I just want to save my own life. That when God's light and love are absent from your life and you are actively working against that, that I think that the, the, the hardness of heart and the inability to see is translates into some of these really interesting um, things that come up. And we see it here with King Noah, but I think that there are other instances throughout scripture and for sure in our world around us today where people make choices that were they connected to God's love and light, undoubtedly those would not be the same choices that they would make. So there were many that would not leave their families and that they would rather stay and perish with them but the rest, there were some who listened to the king and they left their wives and their children and they fled. And it came to pass that those who tarried with their wives and their children caused that their fair daughters should stand forth and plead with the Lamanites that they would not slay them. And in verse 14, the Lamanites had compassion on them and they were charmed by the beauty of their women. And so they came to some sort of an arrangement essentially, without having to fight with the Lamanites. So this group of people, which included Limhi, the son of Noah, who would not leave their families behind to follow after Noah, 
faced this group of Lamanites. Their daughters pled for mercy, and the Lamanites agreed on two conditions that they would not just take them out as a people. One is that they would deliver up King Noah into their hands, that the, that, that the Lamanites wanted King Noah. And the second is that they would basically be in bondage to the Lamanites and they would have to deliver up one half of all that they possessed of their like possessions in that moment, but also as they grew crops or their flocks expanded that each year they would have to pay a tribute of half of everything that they had. And in verse 17, so now Limhi, who is the son of Noah, is left to be the king and the leader over this group that has now been captured by the Lamanites. And they, they, they get to stay in their land, but it's definitely not in a position of freedom like they had before. So in verse 17, and now Limhi was desirous that his father should not be destroyed. Nevertheless, Limhi was not ignorant of the iniquities of his father, he himself being a just man. And I appreciate this came up in the first in back in the beginning of the Book of Mormon and Nephi when we really had this opportunity to see real life family dynamics playing out. And some of it was a was like ideal and lovely and other parts of it were a struggle and challenging and not what many people would consider the ideal in that in that original family situation there with Lehi and Sariah and um, their sons. And I appreciate that here again in the Book of Mormon that we are given so much insight into the real struggle that these people had to contend with as they were seeking to follow after the Savior, that this isn't some cleaned up, tidied up piece of fiction where once you follow God, everything just goes your way or all the decisions are simple or um, there is no conflicting feelings for these people as they are struggling to work through the challenges of mortality because there was some a lot of complexity here in what Limhi was feeling um, he felt that loyalty. He did not want to see his father perish, even though his father was a very wicked man. And he knew that the things that he were doing, that he was doing was not good. And so I appreciated that little bit of real life. It felt very relatable to me just to see that, that there is complexity there. In verse 20, we see that, um, Gideon was sent out to look for King Noah and to try and capture him to follow what the Lamanites had asked and that Noah was killed. Um, be, and really, he wasn't even killed by Gideon, that a lot of these men wanted to return to check on their families to see how everything was going right? That feels reasonable and normal. And King Noah commanded them that they should not return. And they were angry with the king and caused that he should suffer even death by fire. And so we see that part of Abinadi's prophecy is brought to completion here in verse 20 of chapter 19. And so from this point forward, we're really going to have three groups of people that we're talking about until everybody comes back to Zarahemla. We have Limhi's group of people who we now know are in bondage to the Lamanites. And this is the group that Ammon finds. We have Alma, who has fled out into the wilderness with his group of converts. And we have those wicked priests of King Noah that are off on their own in the wilderness trying to flee for their lives. So we have these three groups of people and we're going to see how they all continue to move together. So we are going to see that King Limhi, after they established this period, that they had continual peace for the space of two years. So things are just, you know, settling into a little bit of a routine. Now we come into chapter 20. And we see we're going to connect here with these priests of Noah, that group. And that there was this place where the daughters of the Lamanites would kind of retreat to, to have an area to sing and to dance and to just rest and retreat. 
And in verse three, we see that the priests of Noah, that they were too ashamed to return to the city of Nephi. They were fearing that the people would slay them and they durst not return to their wives and their children. And so for their own shame and pride, they, which neither one are very effective um, places to stay in the long term, but it prevented them from making things right, from humbling themselves and from going to return to their families. And so we see in verse five that as that it was a smaller group than usual that were retreating to this area, these daughters of the Lamanites, there were 24 of them in verse um, and that the priests in verse five, they carried away these these daughters. They basically kidnapped them and took them to be their their wives and to be part of them. And so in verse six, the Lamanites found that their daughters were missing and they were angry. They assumed that it was the people of Limhi. So they sent their armies forth to rescue their daughters and to, I'm sure, enact some sort of revenge for what was happening. And in verse 12, um, so this huge battle lays forth because the people of Limhi have no idea why after two years of peace, the Lamanites are going back on what they said and they're just coming to battle with them. And so the people of Limhi, they they come and they, they're, they're fighting with all of their might. They're fighting, it says in verse 10, they're fighting like lions because they're trying to defend their wives and their children. They have no idea why this is happening. We see in verse 11 that they... Like dragons did they fight, which is so different than the image that we see of these priests in King Noah who just abandoned their wives and children in the fight. Um, and in the middle of the fight, um, in verse 12, they found the king of the Lamanites among the number of the dead, but he was not dead yet. He was just wounded. So they bring him to King Limhi and King Limhi is saying, okay, what cause have ye to come up to war against my people? Like, why are we even fighting? What is happening here? And Limhi shares what, what happened with these daughters that were missing. And King Limhi is saying, okay, I'm going to search through my people. We're going to find who's done this and we're going to make it right. And Gideon says, okay, let's just wait for a minute and think about who else is out in the wilderness that could have done this. Remember these priests who were out in the wilderness and that's probably what happened. And so as they kind of resolve this, we see that um, the king says, bring your people out without any weapons and I will plead your cause. Because I believe you that it wasn't you, that it probably was this group of priests out in the wilderness that have done this thing. So, but here he's got an army that has gotten themselves quite worked up. They're trying to uh, rescue their daughters to defend against this happening again. And so they really have to go in humility and present themselves to the army and hope that their anger is softened toward them. And when the Lamanites in verse 26 saw that the people were without arms, they had compassion on them and they were pacified towards them. So we had some resolution on that. So we move into chapter 21. And again, so the Lamanites have agreed, like, okay, we're not going to go an outright battle against you. We've got these agreements that we've made that we're going to leave you alone as long as you give us the penalty. But some of the um, warriors, some of the people of the Lamanites, um, it's obvious that they were not very happy with that arrangement because although they, strictly speaking, didn't like kill anybody or come up to battle against the people of Limhi, they made their life miserable. Um, they would smite them on the cheeks, exercise authority over them. And in verse five, we see that the afflictions of the Nephites were great and there was no way that they could deliver themselves out of their hands. And so after some time of just being tormented by these kind of renegade Lamanites, they decided that they were just going to stand up for themselves and go fight against the Lamanites. So that so in chapter so in chapter 21, verse one, I mean, excuse me, verse seven, we see the first time that they go out to battle 
And in verse 8, the Lamanites just did beat them, drove them back into their land, and slew many of them. And there was great sorrow and weeping and grieving among the people, among the the widows and the fatherless children because of this. And so it drove the people of Limhi again to want to go and seek restitution for all of this loss that they had. And so we see in verse 11 that they go to battle again. And then in verse 12, even a third time, they went to battle and suffered losses much the same. And so why does this matter? And I think one of the things that is interesting is that I think that there are many times in our life when we are like this, we see a path that we think will bring redemption or it will bring justice or it's what's fair or it's what makes logical sense that we want to overcome something or we there's a path that we want to take and we keep going down this pathway and we're not having success. We're not having the support of the Lord. We're not working in the spirit. And that sometimes it takes having to try it our own way for a while to recognize that maybe the Lord has a different plan in mind for how we can get out from under the situation that we're in. So we see in verse 13, they did humble themselves even to the dust, subjecting themselves to the yoke of bondage, submitting themselves to be smitten and to be driven to and fro. In verse 14, they did humble themselves even in the depths of humility, and they did cry mightily to God. Yea, even all the day long did they cry unto their God, that he would deliver them out of their afflictions. And in verse 15, the Lord did hear their cries and began to soften the hearts of the Lamanites that they began to ease their burdens. So we see this pattern that we have suffering and some of our suffering comes from wanting to pursue things in a way that um, makes sense to us and in a way that makes sense to our brain. And then there's a pattern after that if we choose, then we can reach a place of humility where we can then turn to God and receive his direction and his peace and ultimately his rescue in the situation. When I think about that pattern in my life, I really think about um, parenting for me. And for me, parenting is something that, you know, I am a pretty capable, smart person. I am educated. I'm a pediatric nurse. I have a lot of um, training in mental health. I have a lot of just understanding of sort of what should work when it comes to parenting. Um, what is logical, what makes sense. And I have, I like, I have to laugh. Like I have found myself maybe when it comes to my children or an issue that we're dealing with or a principle that I'm trying to teach that I'm probably a lot like these people of Limhi where I will go forth and I have, you know, passion and I'm fighting for my children and I'm taking this path and it's just not working and I'm not getting the outcome that I want. And so I try again and I'm more committed and I'm more diligent and, you know, being meticulous and following this plan that didn't work the first time. And without fail, when I reach a point where nothing that I'm trying is working in a given situation and I'm able to get to a place of humility about it and turn to the Lord and say, so obviously I need to just rely on you and this is going to be something that I trust and I lean into the Lord to guide me and direct me for my children. And here I was leaning on my own logic, my own understanding. And that's amazing and great until it doesn't work. And the quicker that we realize that our own logic is not the solution, that the Lord's direction and revelation and inspiration is what is going to bring us the answer that we need, then we can move into a place of humility and working in the spirit and moving toward the relief that they want. Because really in this moment, the people of Limhi could not have imagined that their rescue was going to come in the form of Ammon coming from Zarahemla, which they didn't even know if there were still people who lived in Zarahemla at the time. So the rescue was coming. The Lord knew how they were going to be rescued from this situation. 
and their own idea of what was going to happen was so limited compared to what the Lord had in mind for them. He didn't just want for them to push back the Lamanites for a season. He wanted for them to live in freedom in the land of Zarahemla with other believers of, of, um, of Christ. And so at the end of chapter 21, this is where we get to the point where Ammon enters the picture again. And also Limai had sent out a search party searching for the land of Zarahemla. And if we remember, they came across the remains of the Jaredite nations and the plates that he was wanting to have translated. So we see in verse 32, finishing off chapter 21, that since the coming of Ammon, King Limai had also entered into a covenant with God and also many of his people to serve him in his commandments. So of our three groups of people, we now have Alma and his people who are covenanted to follow the Lord. And now we have King Limai and his people who would like to follow the Lord. They're desirous to be baptized in verse 35, and they want that to be their testimony that they want to serve God. And so in chapter 22, this is the... the this is how the Lord unveils or reveals his plan for Limhi's people to escape to Zarahemla. And we will see it has nothing to do with going to battle against the Lamanites. So um, Gideon comes up with this idea. So here's Gideon, again, this amazing man. And he says, so... Alma and Limhi and Gideon and some other people are talking. How can they get themselves out of this bondage to the Lamanites? And he suggests that they pay the last tribute of wine to the Lamanites and that they'll pass through the secret pass on the left of the camp when they are drunken and asleep. Thus, we will depart with our women and children, our flocks and our herds into the wilderness. And so everyone decides this is a really good plan. They're going to follow through with this plan. It works like a charm. The Lord supports them in this. And after many days in the wilderness, they arrive in the land of Zarahemla and they joined Mosiah's people and became his subjects. And Mosiah in verse 14 of chapter 22, Mosiah received them with joy. So to me, this section of what we're reading, I brought this up at the beginning, but it really is all about redemption. We all fall short And yet the Lord takes us as we are and invites us to follow him. It's never too late. We're never too far from him. And much like Mosiah, the Lord will receive us with joy and not condemnation. So whether we are the people of Limhi or the people of Alma, um, both of which at one point were not following the Lord, we see this redemption in this pattern where the Lord not only um forgives them but he rescues them from their intolerable situation and so i just find that's very uplifting and inspiring to consider that here we have yet again these examples in scripture of real people overcoming real challenges and showing us that god's mercy and his grace and his forgiveness are available to all of his children So now we're in chapter 23. So this is going to be taking Alma's people and finishing off how Alma and his people get led to rescue. So this is a continuation from chapter 18. That's where we left off with Alma's people. We're going to be really focusing in on the the second and third groups here. We have Alma and his people, and we will see that the priests of Noah make an appearance here in this section as well. So in verse one, we see Alma having been warned to the Lord that the armies of King Noah would come upon them, um, that they departed into the wilderness. And verse two, the Lord did strengthen them and the people that the people of King Noah could not overtake them and destroy them. So they were protected to be able to get to safety. Now um, Alma is teaching and he says in verse 9 he's kind of talking to them about how they're going to establish their community or their um, 
I guess just as a community of people, like the leadership and how they're going to work things. And the people want Alma to be a king. And Alma says in verse nine, remember the iniquity of King Noah and his priests. And I myself was caught in a snare and did many things which were abominable in the sight of the Lord, which caused me sore repentance. After much tribulation, the Lord did hear my cries and did answer my prayers and has made me an instrument in his hands and bringing so many of you to a knowledge of his truth. And this section to me is saying that our past is not a limitation for our future in God's kingdom because of grace and the mercy that comes to the atonement of Jesus Christ. None of us are limited in what our contribution can be in, in the Lord's work here on earth. Um, he does say in verse 12, ye have been oppressed by King Noah and have been brought in bondage to him and his priests and have been brought into iniquity by them. Therefore, ye were bound with the bands of iniquity. And now as ye have been delivered by the power of God out of these bonds, stand fast in this liberty wherewith ye have been made free. So these people were able to learn firsthand the dangers of having an unrighteous government limiting their freedoms. And Alma wants to put up some safeguards here to protect from the type of situation that they just left and that they as a people were able to recognize the downfall of a wicked king and they took steps to protect a similar situation from happening again so we see in verse 15 alma did teach his people that every man should love his neighbor as himself and there should be no contention among them and none received authority to preach or to teach except it were by him from god and all of the people that were teaching were instructed to nourish them in things pertaining to righteousness so they had come from a situation that was not conducive to the spirit, not conducive to the things of God. They stepped outside of it. They embraced redemption through the Savior, Jesus Christ. And then they put in place safeguards so that that situation would not come up again. And what a beautiful pattern, I think. So we're going to see now in this next section, in, in this next section, that Alma's people are going to be able to escape to Zarahemla and how this comes to pass, because there is a big obstacle that gets put in their way. It's not just a matter of the Lord directing them what direction to go in the wilderness to get to Zarahemla. Um, and we see in verse 21. So here is this good group of people. These are saints. They are forming a body of Christ. They are trying to safeguard from falling into the patterns that they had before. And in chapter 23, verse 21, we see, Nevertheless, the Lord seeth fit to chasten his people. Yea, he trieth their patience and their faith. Nevertheless, whosoever putteth his trust in him, the same shall be lifted up at the last day. So what happens here is that Alma and his people were brought into bondage. So they had set up this community in a land that they called Helam. And while they were tilling the land round about, an army of the Lamanites was in the borders of the land. So Alma and his people, they, they fled from the fields. They gathered into the center of the city. So they all gathered together for safety. Um, and Alma went forth among the people and he stood among them. He exhorted them that they should not be frightened, but that they should remember that the Lord, but that they should remember the Lord, their God. And verse 28, I love. Therefore, they hushed their fears and began to cry unto the Lord that he would soften the hearts of the Lamanites. And if you remember, Elder Bednar gave a talk about hushing their fears from this verse of scripture. And to hush means to quiet to calm, to still. And this is a powerful lesson. We can hush our fears by leaning into our faith. And the hard thing is that it doesn't necessarily mean that we get what we want. That's not what quieting our fears is about or hushing or stilling or calming our fears, but that we can have the gift of calm and peace in a moment of turmoil um, to be able to respond under the direction of the spirit in that moment. Um, but that when we are in this, these moments of turmoil or crisis, 
I have found that it takes constant effort. It's not a one-time prayer. And then for all the days unfolding before that, those fears are just eliminated. For me, it comes much more in the form of a daily, sometimes an hourly seeking of the Lord and pleading with him to help me to quiet my fears and to feel his light and love and to work in the spirit as I am responding to the challenges around me. We see in verse 29 in response to these prayers that the Lord did soften the hearts of the Lamanites so they did not kill him. But at this time, um, they had found the priests of Noah. And Amulon was the leader of the priests. The Lamanites had found them. And Amulon, remember, Amulon and his priests, they had these daughters of the Lamanites that had been taken what we think of is probably a couple years before a year before and so now these daughters were their wives and Amulon sent these wives to plead with the Lamanites not to kill them and the Lamanites had compassion on Amulon and their brethren and did not destroy them because of their wives so now as the Lamanites have come upon Alma the priests in, of um, the the priests who used to be the priests of King Noah, but are now led by Amulon, they were part of this group. And so the, the, the Lamanites had promised Alma and his brethren that if they would show them the way home, that they'd grant them their lives and their liberty. But that's not what happened. The Lamanites did not keep their promise. They sent, they set up guards around about over them. So they came into bondage. And the king of the Lamanites, here's the kicker in verse 39, the king of the Lamanites had granted unto Amulon that he should be the king and the ruler over this people. So Amulon, who used to sit alongside Alma in the court of Noah, is now and who still remains in his wickedness and in his pride is now over Alma and his people who fled from this wicked court to pursue living as a body of Christ. And this was probably a bitter thing for Alma to accept Amulon's rule over him. So verse 24, Amulon gained favor in, I'm sorry, chapter 24, in the eyes of the king and the Lamanites. And King Laman appointed Amulon and his people to be the teachers and the um, over all the people of the Lamanites. And so Amulon and his priests, they taught, um, they, they did not teach any things of God, but they did teach all the Lamanites how to read and how to write and how to communicate. And so the Lamanites became much more successful. They were able to um, do their business and do all of these things much more effectively because of them. And, and so because of that success and the pride of his heart, Amulon began to exercise authority over Alma and really began to treat them more poorly than the Lamanites were treating them. And we see in verse 10 that so great were their afflictions, the people of Alma, that they began to cry mightily to God. And Amulon commanded them that they should stop their cries. And he put guards over them to watch them, that whosoever should be found calling upon God should be put to death. And Alma and his people did not raise their voices to the Lord their God, but did pour out their hearts to him. And he did know the thoughts of their hearts. So just a reminder, however we need to reach out to the Lord, whether it's vocally or by the feeling and intent of our heart, that the Lord hears us, he knows. The voice of the Lord came unto them in their affliction, saying, Lift up your heads and be of good comfort. I will ease the burdens which are put upon your shoulders, that even you cannot feel them upon your backs while you are in bondage. And this I will do, that ye may stand as a witness for me hereafter, that you may know of a surety that I, the Lord God, do visit my people in their afflictions." So we're learning here from the Lord that some are called to stand as a witness of the Lord's miraculous power to deliver us. 
And it came to pass that the burdens which were laid upon Alma and his brethren were made light. Yea, the Lord did strengthen them that they could bear up their burdens with ease, and they did submit cheerfully and with patience to the will of the Lord. So great was their faith and their patience. So then the Lord speaks to them again and says, Be of good comfort, for on the morrow I will deliver you out of bondage. And so the Lord gives instructions on what they're to do. So Alma and his people gather their flocks and their peep and their grain and all of their things, their children and their wives. And they do this in the nighttime and they gather together. And in the morning, the Lord caused a deep sleep to come upon the Lamanites. Even the taskmasters were in a profound sleep. And I love the faith that is shown here by Alma and his people because they did all of this preparation. They gathered all of these things together before they saw that the Lamanites would be subdued and asleep. And they were able to leave and to walk out. And as they left the valley of Alma, they poured out or as they entered into this valley that they called Alma as they had escaped into the wilderness, they poured out their thanks to God because he had been merciful unto them and eased their burdens and had delivered them out of out of bondage. So once again, we see that gratitude and thankfulness are part of this divine pattern. And the Lord warns them again, you're going to need to move even further out but I will prevent the Lamanites from chasing you beyond this point. So after 12 days of journeying in the wilderness, they arrived in Zarahemla. And once again, we see, which is such a beautiful example that King Messiah gives, that he did receive them with joy. So we have brought the people of Zenith back full circle to Zarahemla, each with their own journey, each with a lot of experiences and how thankful I am this week to be reminded that regardless of our past or how roundabout our journey may be, that there is a place for each one of us in the Lord's kingdom. And that through the atonement of Jesus Christ, that there is redemption for all of us. So thank you for joining with me and come follow me this week. And next week, we look forward to seeing what happens as Alma begins to establish a church in the land of Zarahemla. All right. Have a good week.